Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Right now, uh, Jeff Traeger joins us. He is the president of UFCW 832, representing High Life Workers. Jeff, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Al. How are you? Hey, uh, uh, I'm fine, and, and thank you for getting back to me and agreeing to come on and chat. Um, we've been trying to reach somebody at High Life to talk to them uh, about what's happening in their plants. Um, and so uh, when we did not hear back, we decided to give you a call, and I appreciate the quick response. So uh, first of all, uh, you represent, uh, the union represents High Life workers in Nipawa and La Brokery, correct? Uh, only the workers that are in uh, Nipua, not the workers in the brokery. They only have one really large plant, and that's in Nipua, and we represent the uh, 1,300 workers there. All right, good. I wanted to clarify that because I wasn't sure. Obviously, uh, meat plants like this one have become a part of the COVID-19 story. What's happening in Nipua with High Life and your workers? Well, I guess the first thing and the most important thing is that we continue to be lucky here in Manitoba that there hasn't been any signs of COVID-19 in the plant in Nipua. We also represent uh, the Maple Leaf workers here in Winnipeg on Lajamodier and in Brandon. So we have about 4,500 members that work in this industry, and there have been no instances of COVID in any of the plants. Which is, as you point out, great news, isn't it? It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And a big part of that, I have to take my hat off to uh, the employers, both High Life and Maple Leaf, for all of the precautions that they've put in place. There's a very, very long list of things that they've done to protect those workers. Give us a few. If you're a worker at one of those plants, what's your day like when it comes to preventing the spread of COVID-19? Well, when you get to the plant, you have to go through security and you're asked questionnaires about travel and about where you've been and how you're feeling. Uh, They do a temperature check on every employee before uh, every shift. Uh, they've staggered the uh, the breaks, and they've also expanded the employee areas, so put up temporary locker rooms and temporary bathrooms to make sure that people can be uh, far enough apart. And in the break room, they only allow three per table, and they've added more. They've staggered the shifts so that when there's a shift change, you don't have hundreds of people coming one way and hundreds going the other way. They put about an hour between uh, the shifts in order to make sure that one crew gets out before the next one gets in. They've closed the facility to visitors. They've added more entranceways, um, and they have provided employees with masks. They are working on those face shields that you see, but the um, problem with those is that they fog up significantly because of the temperature in the plant, so they're working on a solution to that right now. Well, and I was reading up a bit on these other plants that are having issues, and basically, if you get a case of COVID-19 in one of these plants, the only way to deal with it is to shut down for 14 days, two weeks, and everybody self-isolates, which is why when these plants start to shut down, it becomes such a big concern. Yeah, and that's the lesson learned from the Cargill mistake in Alberta when they didn't do that, even though the union was calling for them to shut the plant down. Uh, You know, they had 38 cases one week, six days later, they had over 500 and two deaths. So obviously, if we did see a case of COVID-19 in any of these plants, we would be calling out very loudly for them to uh, shut the plant down. It's just impossible to social distance a lot on the lines. When they're physically on the line, a lot of these workers are are shoulder to shoulder, just a few inches apart from one another. You're in this business, um, uh, Jeff. Any concern on your part when it comes to the supply chain? I hear different things from different people on this. 
Well, uh, in the pork industry, which is what Manitoba primarily uh, produces, uh, we, right now they have not slowed down one bit, so I don't see any issue with that. And our two poultry plants that we represent, uh, what used to be called Granny's, which is now Exeldor and Dunright, are both fully operational as well. So I think it's because two of the uh, largest producers of beef in Canada are in Alberta, that that could potentially start to uh, to hamper domestic supply, which would end up increasing prices. And I think that's what people are worried about. And if another one of those plants shuts down, then that might be a realistic concern. It's not, not easy to import uh, meat products from other countries right now. How much of the product that you deal with at High Life and the other plants you mentioned uh, here in Manitoba, how much of that product stays here? How much of it goes elsewhere? Where does it go? Well, it's uh, primarily the uh, High Life plant sells most of their pork in Japan. They do have, they do provide domestic as well here in Manitoba, but that would be a relatively low percentage. Um, they export uh, probably 90% of their product overseas, just like Brandon plant sells most of their pork in Asia. But you also have to understand that these two plants combined uh, slaughter uh, 24 thousand at full capacity 24,000 hogs every day so there's no way Manitobans could eat that much pork obviously uh, and that's why domestic supply here is uh, never going to be a, an issue because of the amount of pork that is produced at those plants so other than and you mentioned you know kudos uh, and props to the employers which is great you don't yep. hear that often from from you, you know <laughs> from a, a union guy a union guy <laughs> so I, I'm happy to hear that uh, aside yeah. from the face shields which can't be used and you explained why any other issues that you or your members the workers at these plants are dealing with or is it right now at this point an all good news story it's almost an all good news story um, Granny's poultry or Exeldor in Bloom North, Manitoba actually went to put plexiglass dividers, like the ones you see for cashiers in the grocery stores. Uh, they put these up on the lines between people working shoulder to shoulder so that they at least had some additional protection. We're, we know that both Maple Leaf and High Life are looking at that. It, it provides some unique challenges based on the workplace. But uh, they, our members would love to see uh, those uh, put into place. And, and obviously, uh, the 14-day thing that you already talked about, they'd like to know from their employer that if there was a positive uh, case of COVID-19, that the employer wouldn't risk an outbreak like we've seen in Alberta, and they would uh, shut their plant down and let everybody self-isolate for two weeks. You know, as we hear about Saskatchewan's five-phase plan that we heard about this morning to reopen the province, loosen some of the restrictions, and we're told in the next week or 10 days we'll see a similar plan uh, here in the province of Manitoba. This really, you know, what you're telling me today, Jeff, really goes to doing it right and doing it early and sticking with it, right? And I think that's as we look at reopening things, we have to be cautious about it. And and it, it really is great to hear that things are going so well for, for you at the plants and, and your members. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that that is absolutely true. I couldn't uh, agree with you more. We have to take a measured approach, a common-sense approach, and we have to take this one step at a time if we're going to start opening up. I understand the importance of opening up the economy. I feel for all those people that are uh, financially suffering right now. Uh, these plants are good examples of what happens when you do things the right way, and I think that uh, here in Manitoba I'd like to see us open up our economy the right way as well. And that means doing it slowly, carefully, and in a well-thought-out way. Hey, Jeff, thanks a lot for this. I really appreciate your time and, and appreciate the update. 
No problem, and happy birthday. Have a good four-day weekend, oh, though. Thank you very much. Jeff Trigger, right. the president of UFCW 832, representing High Life and other workers at meat processing plants here in the province of Manitoba, including uh, out in Nipawa, and he, he mentioned the others as well. I, I won't run the whole list down, but that's good news. I'm happy to hear that. Lila Knox is the director of Northwest Community Food Center, and she joins us on the phone now. Lila, good afternoon. Hi, Hal. How are you? Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, I've been uh, messaging back and forth with uh, Harvey Sumka, and he's been telling me a bit about what's going on, and you've got details for us. Tell us about these grocery bags that are being delivered. You're not a delivery service, but you're delivering bags of groceries to people in need. Yes, that's true, Hal. Uh, Normally, we invite people in and have our food access programs at sit-down meals, but obviously we can't do that now. So with some emergency funds from our funders, we have put together 300 grocery bags each week. Uh, We're on week three right now, and those bags are sort of half fresh fruit and produce, half pantry items, sometimes a roll of toilet paper because Harvey was able to find me some. And uh, we're sending those to vulnerable seniors throughout the North End. Now, just seniors or or others as well? Because my understanding was it was not just seniors, but tell me. That's true. Um, Harvey sent me to some seniors' residences that uh, would definitely benefit. We're sending about 100 to families um, through Norwest Family Resource Centres in Blake Gardens and Gilbert Park. So about 100 go to families. And then about the other 200, uh, through Harvey's suggestions, are going to Fred Douglas, Bluebird Lodge, Westlands at Audi, uh, even the Westbrook Hotel we're trying to get on site. So we've got a number of places that we're delivering bags as we speak. And how do you find out about these people in need out there? How do they let you know they could use some help or do you go seek them? Uh, Actually, that was where Harvey, who's an excellent community partner to Norwest, uh, comes in. Uh, Once he knew we could do these, he was uh, quick to identify the residences that um, you know, are, are full of uh, low-income seniors, and he felt that everyone in these residences would uh, benefit from this program, and that made it very efficient because instead of delivering individually to seniors' homes, we were taking them to the loading dock, and then the staff in those homes could distribute them for us so that we're not adding our presence into their isolation. And uh, But I do have um, ideas for isolated seniors who also need um, these individual bags. Sure, we'll share it with us. Okay, so um, the United Way, with some government funding, is spearheading uh, a 311 program. So seniors all across the city who are in needs of either medication delivery, food, I mean, really anything they need to be able to stay in their home uh-huh. um, are, should be calling 311. And then I think they get triaged through Agent Opportunity. And if they're in our neighborhood, uh, their information will be passed to us. And our family resource centers are stepping up and will be able to deliver grocery hampers directly to those people. So they might, might be the grocery hampers I'm providing them, or they might be ones that they're putting together. But Norwest is on top of that and has been delivering to um, individuals as well uh, since last Friday, I believe. Isn't that great? Just by calling 311. I, you know what, it's just just been launched, and I'm sure there's a few wrinkles. I know that we ended up uh, delivering all the way to Transcona, and that's probably not how it's supposed to happen. Mm. 
But uh, it did happen, because if we get a call, we will respond. And I'm sure yeah. there are organizations in Transcona that will eventually be involved as well. Yeah. We uh, talk about Harvey Sumka. He passed me on to you. As I said, I've been chatting with uh, Harvey, and i got to thank a listener, Scott, uh, for telling me about the work that Harvey does. You're both involved in the uh, Kuwaitan Inkster Neighborhood Resource Center as well. You're very busy, Lila. Maybe talk a bit about that organization as well. Right. Uh, so Harvey's the ED, and I'm a board member of his. Um, so we're, we're quite well connected, and maybe that's why our partnership works so well. Uh, Norwest has always had a board member on his board, um, so it's not only been me, but others as well. Um, I think those partnerships work really well. So uh, Harvey's uh, sort of an angel to all the seniors in the North End, and yeah. he has all kinds of programs. Um, he does um, congregate meals through the WRHA. He has a a call-in line for isolated mm. seniors so that they call in and we know that they're okay each day. He runs legal clinics. He's got um, iPad lessons. He's exactly what they call him, a resource you know, coordinator. So he's supposed to make sure all the seniors in our neighborhood know what resources exist. And in fact, he also supplies a number of resources on his own. Mm-hmm. And before I uh, have to let you go here, Lila, tell me about the people, when you show up at their door with these bags of groceries uh, containing things that they need, how are they reacting? What are they telling you? How desperate are some of these people? Um, so, first of all, I'm not going directly to their doors. I don't get past maybe the loading dock or the back door at Bluebird. But yeah. I have been hearing, um, because each bag, I mean, we thought people, if they just had a bag of groceries show up, would be a little nervous. So we have a bag tag on each um, a gro- bag of groceries that it identifies our funders. And on the back of the first two weeks, we had a number of emergency numbers, including the social workers at Norwest. And um, several um, isolated older men phoned those social workers. One of them was close to tears just to say that he was so pleased to receive the bag of groceries and, and just to not feel that he'd been forgotten in all of this. So I think there's a lot of fear in the neighborhood and that's resulted in phone calls to the social workers. It's resulted in emails to the Norwest contact us kind of line. It's resulted in handwritten gift cards that have been received at our resource centers. Hmm. Um, One woman phoned the media to say how lovely it was. And in a very few cases, there are people in those residences who've said, you know, thank you so much. I'm actually fine. Please make sure this bag goes to someone else in need, in which case we take their name off the list and we've been adding to the other people we can send to. So everybody's been uh, communicating about uh, what's beneficial in the bag. Um, We've got sort of a a list of items. They're still looking for toilet paper. Um, You know, some people live in places where they don't have cooking um, availability and so they've just got a microwave so then they're telling us you know please don't send me pasta please send me baked beans and we're working with our suppliers to try and find 300 of everything we want to put in bags so we're we're managing and uh, this week we had actually a recipe on the back for a tuna noodle casserole and we were be we were able to put in all the ingredients for that casserole and we hope some of them are, are spending the time to make something really comforting Lila, I'm telling you, people like you and Harvey, amazing. Keep up the great work, and thanks for your time today. Hal, can I mention one thing? Yes. I I have to say thank you to Community Food Centers of Canada, who got some funding from the Government of Canada. 
these people have stepped up, and then the Winnipeg Foundation sent us money, the Jewish Foundation of Manitoba, and CanAge Manitoba in Ottawa. They all just came to us and gave us money to purchase this food. So we're very grateful. Fantastic. Everybody's doing their part. And if anybody wants to reach out, the organization is Norwest Community Food Center and also Kiwaitan Ingster Neighborhood Resource Center. Lila, thank you. Thanks, Hal. Lila Knox is the director of Norwest Community Food Center, and she's on the board of Kuwait and Ingster Neighborhood Resource Center. Right now on the phone, Manitoba's Liberal leader, Dougal Lamont, joins us. Dougal, good afternoon. Hey, how are you doing? Excellent. Thanks for uh, coming on today for a few minutes. Um, I feel like, um, you know, we need to start hearing other voices about what's happening in the in the province in the in in the city we're hearing a lot from the premier and we should he's the premier um but i i did notice that you at the liberal party sent out a news release with some concerns about uh some of the impact on education we'll get to that in a second let me just ask you a general question how have we in your opinion leader of the manitoba part leader of the liberal party in manitoba how have we been doing with covid19 generally speaking do you think well, I mean, there are two parts to that. I think one yeah. on the health side, uh, we were a little late going. And look, there have been tons of problems with PPE and people getting access to care. But clearly, when you look at the numbers, um, I think we've been lucky in a lot of ways, right? Is that we are not a place like New York where there were you know thousands of people flying in from other areas. Uh, so we've been able to contain it. It looks like we're doing an okay job of managing it. The flip side of that, though, is the economic impact. Um, that we've been incredibly slow and uh, very reactive. So you know, when it comes to the the health response, it's it's uh, it's been it's been okay. But the uh, we need to be doing way way more on the on the side of the economy uh, because every other province has stepped up in, often in a very big way, and uh, the PCs have not done that. And in fact. What they're proposing to do instead is to do, you know, a whole bunch of layoffs and cuts, which will just add to the economic pain, and that's the last thing we should be doing right now. What are some things that you think Premier Pallister and his Tory government should have done sooner? Because I'll be honest with you, I I really think Canadian politicians, generally speaking, including uh, the Premier, I think uh, our politicians have done a pretty good job. So give me examples of things that should have been done sooner. Oh, uh, the small business. I mean, there are a couple of things. First, on March 2nd, you know, we were talking about weeks and weeks ago was when we first said, look, this, this, we were the first party to say this government needs to come up with a COVID-19 plan. And about a month ago, we also said, look, you've got to do something for small business. And they only announced something yesterday, and it's really not enough. The feds have stepped up in a big way, but I'm hearing all the time from all from small businesses um, mm-hmm. that, look, they're, they could be bankrupt in in a week or or in a month um and the most important thing the the most important thing we need to focus on right now is making sure as many people make it through this thing alive but the second most important thing is we have to make sure we can you know sort of keep every business going preserve every single job all these institutions and everything else that that are they need to be around and ready to reopen in you know because in in a few instances it'll be a few weeks but in others it'll be a few months if they're not around, they're not going to be able to contribute to the to the economy bouncing back. 
And yeah. for tons of small businesses, it's uh, restaurants. Um, it, there, there just hasn't been the support. And 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 Manitoba has really stood out in this. Is it every other province has has stood up? PC premiers, Conservative premiers, and other provinces, Saskatchewan and Ontario, have been making sure that small businesses get grants, not just more loans, in order to make to tide them over. And there have been huge problems with uh, for uh, early learning childhood uh, centers as well. So part of it for me is making sure that those small businesses are looked after. That's one of the the absolute biggest thing. The second thing is that. At a time when you're seeing record numbers of, of jobs being lost, the last thing we should be doing is adding to that with more cuts, more layoffs, or more wage cuts. I know there are a lot of people who go, well, shouldn't we all be sharing the pain? But don't think about it. It's, it's you're spreading the pain. Every single dollar uh, mm-hmm. and every single dollar that the province cuts right now, and they want to cut over a billion dollars, is going to drive our economy even deeper into the hole. So we got to stop digging. Um, and that's that's... That's been our, our our issue. Is that, and when he's talking about thirty percent cuts to universities, you're talking about closing the doors of Brandon University, closing the doors of University of Winnipeg. Those aren't just job losses. These are these are places where people learn to train for jobs. They need they're they're going to have to be around, and a, a critical part of this because it's going to be a while for unemployment or for employment to bounce back. There's going to be tons of young people who want need to or, and others who need to go back to school, retrain, get new skills. And if there's no university there to do it, that's not going to happen. So, uh, and look, I'm not alone in this. It's, there's a broad range of people. Mm-hmm. Sandy Riley, you know, former head of investors group said, look, the government needs to step up. Um, there's a, an economist at the the business school at, at U of M who's a, who's a member of the PC party who says, <laughs> uh, who says it's dangerous to cut non-essential services right now because those people are going to keep spending at businesses, right? So, um, there's this there's this point basically we need to help make sure that every as many businesses and institutions make it across make it through this crisis intact that's what our goal should be mm-hmm. but that's not what the pcs have been doing yeah i think you know i and the professor you're talking about i think was on my show the other day and after talking to him you know i'm i'm kind of with you on this maybe we need yep. to take a second look at layoffs and how else can we can we handle that uh, because you're right, we need to bounce back quickly, and, uh, well, and, and the, easy say, thing, like the, seniors, the, the easy the thing to do is, would be to, to cut a bunch of jobs, and and I'm I'm not so sure that's the best approach. Yeah, and look, and and I know the premier is saying you know he wants to cut his own salary. Look, I think the better thing to do instead of cutting his salary would be to take that money and spend it at a small business, or go and spend it, donate it to a nonprofit, or donate it to a charity that needs help right now. That's a much better way. Like the the worst thing we can do. The whole thing is, is that the private sector is is seizing up, right? So, uh, and, and it's terrible. And and I want to make sure that, like I say, as many of those Manitoba businesses, especially Manitoba-owned businesses, make it through. Or and what we said is you could help them hibernate, right? Essentially, help them cover their costs while they shut down. Uh, you can pay, you know, cover their rent and stuff because. Mm-hmm. If they can't make it, then they go broke, then their landlord yeah. goes broke, and then their landlord can't pay their rent. And you have this whole, you know, domino of bad things happening. Mm-hmm. So this is really about just holding on. And, and and it's really about making sure that money is, as much money as possible, is, and without going crazy, 
yeah. as much money as possible is still flowing into the economy, and that we're sure. and we're basically essentially hibernating, right? Yeah. Um, and and hey, that's, uh, Dougal, I, I I want to interrupt you because I'm running out of time, and I do have two more quick questions for you. You mentioned the pay sure. cut the premier's taking. What about yeah. you're an MLA for Saint Boniface and a party leader? What about you and all MLAs and politicians at the various levels of government doing the same thing? If even if it's not a significant amount of money, it's a gesture. Yeah. Well, I know. I think this is the thing is that you want to make a gesture that's a positive thing. So we sure. we are like we get a COLA increase, cost of living increase. We're donating that to charity. But the other is that I don't want to I actually think in setting an example, what I want to do is set an example by paying my taxes, spending my money at local businesses and donating to charity, um, because I don't think, like I say, the board, the, then that's what I think the premier should be doing, too, rather okay. than saying, well, we all need to cut back right now. And, and look, it's one thing to say if if you're if you're like a CEO, if you're somebody who's making a ton of money, to, I'm going to take the hit so that my employees don't. I shouldn't be. I shouldn't also be saying, well, I'm going to be taking a hit because. But I also expect other people to take a thirty percent hit, right? Is that I? That's the thing. Is that I actually think I recognize that people in the private sector have no choice but to cut back right now to, yeah. to make sure they can survive. But if the public, but and that's why it's so important not to essentially double down on that right is that mm-hmm. if, if the private sector cuts by 30 percent and the public sector cuts by 30 percent that's we're just doubling our losses yeah so okay and, me, and Dugold, I'm, I'm really tight on time i want to ask you one more quick question i apologize um no, one no, more no. quick question are we ready to reopen we expect to see a plan from the province in the next week or 10 days dr rusin gave us that timeline today and we heard a similar timeline from premier pallister yesterday are we ready to start loosening restrictions and start reopening the economy in manitoba you know, uh, it's got to be based on, on health, right? As I, I saw some people talking about this, too. Like, you feel like, okay, we're doing okay. But it's sort of somebody said, look, it's like you're wearing a parachute. So, you know, this parachute has really slowed me down. I, I, I might as well take it off now. But we haven't hit ground yet, right? We've still got a long way to go. I looked at Saskatchewan's plan. It's, it takes a while. Like, we got to be clear that the stuff they're talking about, we're not talking about a full reopening for more than a full month. And then beyond that, it, it's still, you know, your restaurants have to be half empty. You're still nothing over 50 people. So we're not talking about, we're still, no, we're not going to be reopening sports or any big facilities. Like there's still going to be really big limits, and including for big employers, right? So we, I know that there's this excitement and people are champing at the bit, and I completely understand that, but we still need to be making sure we're not rushing it, right. that the government is actually making sure that these businesses are able to survive and make it through intact because there's some, some are not going to be able to do it. Some will be back faster. Um, and really it's all about minimizing the scars from, from this. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. um, I hope we, we shouldn't think that because these businesses are, are a few businesses are going to be real open in a patchwork kind of way, yeah. that that's a reason not to step up. The government really still needs to make sure because there I'm still hearing from small businesses, who who are not they're not eligible for what's coming from the feds and the, yeah and, the and, and we already had this discussion and I'm way over time here Dugald I I appreciate oh, your you time so today time, thank you appreciate it Manitoba Liberal Leader Dugald Lamont it's Thursday it's just after the two thirty news and so that means Carolyn Classen is with us from Canexus Counseling hello Carolyn hey Hal how are you. I'm good. Um, I'm taking a four-day weekend. It's my birthday. I think it's Sunday. I've kind of lost track. I'll be honest with you. Jackie mentioned to me day before yesterday, what are we going to do for your birthday? She kind of had a smile on her face because what can we do? 
And I went, <laughs> wow, yeah, it's it's my birthday. So I'm going to burn in some days off. I'll be back on Tuesday. So I'm looking forward to a barbecue tonight and a, an extended weekend. Um, since we talked last Thursday, I'll, I got some stuff I want to get into here. But since we talked last Thursday, what has struck you relating to COVID-19, this pandemic, and how we're handling it? Anything stick out for you that you wanted to weigh in on? Well, I think um, a couple of things. One is that um, I think we're realizing that we're needing to turn this from a sprint into a marathon Mm. um, where we were sort of figuring out how to readjust our lives in the short term. And like I know around our house, um, we're realizing that actually real schoolwork needs to get done, right? Um, That sort of waiting and hoping that things will get back to normal, that's not going to happen. we got to figure out how we settle into this existence. And so um, we have to figure out how to kind of do this for the long haul. And the tricky thing about like a marathon, you know, is 26.2 miles. We don't actually know how long this marathon is going to be. And so we're settling into this with really no end in sight. And that feels really vulnerable. And so um, I just sort of watch people struggling with the reality that um, we have to adjust to this and we don't know for how long we're going to have to adjust. And when things open, it's not going to be wide open. It's going to be different. And what does different look like? And so there's a different level of uncertainty that people are feeling now. Yeah, really good point. Yet, in Saskatchewan today, they announced a five-phase plan to kind of reopen things and loosen restrictions. We're expecting a plan similar to that. Dr. Brent Rusin told us today uh, in the provincial news conference that the Saskatchewan plan is along the lines of what, uh, of what they've been looking at here, and we're expecting to see that plan in the next week or 10 days. So while what you say about a marathon is true, there's also some anticipation that maybe slowly we'll start to get things back to normal. Talk a bit about anticipation because, boy, we have all had that pent-up feeling of, oh, when's this going to end? It's got to end. When can we kind of get back to normal? Maybe weigh in on that a bit. Oh, and let me tell you how my gray hair roots are not just roots. They're taken over as full-on <laughs> trunks, right? Like, um, <laughs> there are some things that are going to feel so sweet and such a luxury. And I guess the challenge is, even as things open up, well, when will I be able to get my gray roots addressed? Partly of when will that be allowed? When would hairstylists be able to open up? And then there's the other part of it is... So when I get a chance to get my gray roots addressed, everybody else is going to be wanting to do it as well, right? And he only has so many hands and so many slots in the day. And so there is this sense of um, this is going to be, and, and I think there's going to be a sweetness to it, right? I Things that we have often taken for granted, there's going to be such pleasure in such simple things to be able to walk, to be able to have my kids over for supper again and sit around the same table and laugh and joke and small talk the way that Zoom does not allow. There's going to be a sweetness to it that is just going to be beyond how much I normally appreciate these things. We're just going to hold those things and treasure and value them. And I hope that we're able to hold on to that feeling and not take simple things for granted and realize that what we're missing um, are really simple things, but simple things are what make life worth living, what give us joy, and we'll be able to hold on to and emphasize and, and really live our life in light of what's truly important. In a roundabout way, we will get back to COVID-19, but I want to make sure we talk about the tragedy in Nova Scotia. We had a woman on CJOB yesterday who lost her sister and brother-in-law, and she was talking about how they were meant to be on holiday when this happened. And because of COVID-19, which, of course, 
prevented them from going on that holiday. They were home instead, and as a result of being at home and not on holiday, they were two of the victims killed by this gunman. And uh, it came up in our news meeting this morning, Lorraine McNabb talked about how when she heard that yesterday on CGOB, it sort of choked her up. She was emotional about it. And I got thinking about that. I guess it's kind of what ifs, right? Or coulda, shoulda, woulda. I don't know how you put it. But it seems to me like maybe that almost relates to guilt. We talk a lot about grief. You're you're an expert on that. What what do you think of that whole situation? It's tragic. It is tragic. And I think um, when you hear the what ifs, like it didn't have to be this way. If things had been normal, if they had been able to do what they would have normally done, that wouldn't have happened. And I think Mm -hmm. the what ifs, um, they are very much connected to grief. And um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she looked at people that were dying, I think it was back in the 50s or so, um, and she was listening to them and hearing about the different stages of grief. Um, and what she attributed the what-ifs to was to the bargaining stage of grief. And that bargaining of, so if this, then that. And, and sort of this negotiation of, I wish it didn't have to be that way. And part of the what-if part of grieving that um, your, the interview yesterday had with this sister grieving desperately, deeply over the loss of family members because of this, the what-ifs, what they do is they, it's a key stage, and what it allows us is it allows us to hold a piece of an alternate future in which those deaths didn't happen. And so it's a way of kind of almost blunting the grief because it's a bit of a reprieve because you're imagining an alternate future. And so it is a way of coping with something that doesn't feel like it's fully copable if you just take it in all of the depth of how painful this is. The what if kind of gives you a bit of a breather because it allows you to imagine that alternate future. And so that's something that people need to do as a part of grieving when you need a bit of a break from the harsh reality. You can imagine what a different future might have been like. And that in in a little bit of a way is is our heart's way of giving us a bit of a break. Mm. Um, if that continues on indefinitely, it can actually be a bit tortured where sometimes people will go into the what ifs of what if I had said this or what if I had done that, then it might never have happened. And people can use that to beat themselves up rather than to give themselves that break. And that's when it's really helpful to talk to somebody about it. Mm-hmm. And when something like that happens, you know, two dozen people uh, killed by a gunman, when something like that happens, I think that um, I'm, I'm a fixer. That's my my personality, right? What's the problem? Mm-hmm. Let's fix it. And so I see that, and I try and wrap my head around the sense of that. And there is no sense to a tragedy like that, right? But yet it's it's difficult to deal with, I think, for a lot of people. Not sisters of, of victims, but, you know, just as general Canadians who care about other Canadians. Well, and I think how what you recognize your brain wants to do is what went wrong and what can they do to fix it so that doesn't happen again, right? And how, especially how can I make sure that it doesn't happen to me over here because I'm going to do it differently from how it happened over there. And it's, it's that whole idea of wanting to fix it and wanting to make sense of it is a way of trying to reduce our vulnerability. If we can figure out what went wrong, then we can figure out what to make it right. And what you're saying is that some of the stuff is senseless. There is no logic to it. This should not have happened. And we are all really vulnerable because we don't know if it could happen again. But the good news is, is that really this sort of thing actually in Canada happens so rarely. Um, It's something we are all horrified by. 
but it's the sort of thing that has captured such news because this doesn't happen often. This is the exception, which I am so grateful for. And we have to recognize that although that vulnerability now we've been aware is exists, it always was there. And for the most part, this stuff does not happen. And we have to remember to hold on to the dangerous feeling, the vulnerable feeling that it has happened, but also the knowledge that really it happens quite rarely. Um, and so it's very painful for the people who have lost family members and friends in this. But we have to remember to hold on to all that we can be grateful for in terms of how our laws are structured and how our system is set up so that this thing actually doesn't happen as often as, I mean, if it happened with any frequency, it would be horrible. And it doesn't. It's quite rare. Certainly in this country, yes, it is. Although it happens, as you point out, far too much. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.